Lord, you know our wandering hearts. You know what we're like. You know the loves that we battle with. And so we say to you this morning that we need to be nourished from your word. We need to hear your voice. Would you captivate us afresh this morning? And so might we leave this place changed and equipped and longing to live for you. In your son's name. Amen. So, um, decision making in life is a very complex topic. There's lots of stuff going on, but a recent um, experiment in the journal Science showed something extraordinary, that the experiment was to do with gambling, and the scientists were trying to understand why people make the particular calls that they made with the information that they had. And the bottom line of the experiment, for the scientists at least, was very surprising. It found this. It found that often, head follows heart. Okay, it found that we we make the decision initially in our hearts and then seek to justify it intellectually with our heads. We make the emotional decision first and then we look for the intellectual information to try and back up that decision which is very interesting. It's got all kinds of implications with all kinds of areas of life. It means we're not neutral. It means when we come down to it, we don't simply want to rationally assess the relative strengths and weaknesses of an argument of something and then make a decision. We've, we've already decided very often. It means we're, we're not objective. It means we're not robots. We've already made our minds up. A couple of examples of implications when it comes to matters of faith. When you've already made your mind up about something, you, you don't want to process the evidence in front of you. It doesn't make much of a difference. And we see that right through the Gospels. You see different groups of people encountering Jesus. They see the evidence firsthand. They've experienced the miracles. But they don't want to worship him. They want to kill him. They've already made their minds up. When we've got friends who say, well, if only I saw Jesus, if I was there to see the miracles, if you can just persuade me of this, then I'll believe what you say. It's not actually the case. People aren't rational or neutral. It doesn't mean we don't seek to speak to people or engage with them and persuade them, but it does mean we must pray. Or if you've already made your mind up, you don't want to listen. It's not just that you don't process the evidence that you see in front of you, you filter the evidence that's going in. You choose to listen to the messages that you want to believe. We're selective because we've decided already on something and we don't want to be challenged. It means that people actually believe what they want to be true rather than perhaps what they know to be true. People deliberately believe a falsehood because they want to believe it, because it makes them happy. And so the problem in Ephesus for Timothy and the problem in Oxford for people like us is that as we've seen already in this service, we are people who love self and money and pleasure. And we like those loves and we justify them and we cling to them and we nurse them and we defend them. And if someone tells us they're okay, then we'll do our best to listen. But the danger for Timothy is that there are false teachers around the place And they are gathering a following. 
because they are saying it is okay to love self. They are saying what people's itching ears want to hear. And so the crowds flock. Maybe it's the kind of stuff we saw in chapter 2 with Hymenaeus and Philetus, that the resurrection's already taken place, that, that you could have your best life now, which involves the things of this world in abundance. You see, in our passage for this morning in verse 3, you see, for the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine, instead to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Do you see, we listen to the messages that we want to listen to rather than perhaps the ones that we need. Now these eight verses in chapter 4, as Paul recounts this to Timothy, as he, he charges him with this important task, in the first instance is for those people like me who have the incredible privilege of opening up the Bible, of preaching. This is a passage for people like me, or perhaps those who are considering that for the future. Perhaps you're working in other Christian organisations, or you have opportunities to teach. Maybe it's a trajectory you're heading towards, you're thinking and discussing and testing and praying. I know a number of people in this room who are thinking about that for the future. If that is your scenario, then listen in to these verses. Don't just let them wash over you. Spend time this week. Let them challenge, shape you, sift you, make you feel uncomfortable. This is a passage for preachers. But I want to say as well that all the way along through Second Timothy, we've seen there are principles there for all of us. If you like, there are capital P preachers. But then we all have that day-by-day privilege of sharing the word, of sharing Christ with those around us. Of giving an answer for the hope that we have. It might not be in a 30-minute, 35-minute monologue. but it might well come in the form of growing friendships, of opportunities just along the way. Chats over lunchtime in the office or with your NCT group or at the school gate or as you commute or over the dinner table. As friendships grow and develop and deepen. It's a passage for preachers, but it's a passage for all of us. Before we jump in, this is your first Sunday here, just... A brief recap as to where we've come. We've got Paul, who is in prison. This is his final letter. He's handing the baton on to Timothy, urging him to to pick it up and to run with it. To guard the gospel, to share the gospel, to, to let it grow fruit and bear fruit. Timothy, pastor in Ephesus, naturally timid, is under pressure. The church is being squeezed from the outside and the church is being infected from within and people are like flies buzzing around these false teachers, listening to the messages that justify their love of self. And this is it, verse 1 to 8. This is the charge. This is the challenge. There are some personal stuff and practicalities next week. But this week is the bit we feel uncomfortable Which means we need to remember the entire letter again and we need to remember the challenge at the start, the encouragement at the start that ours is a God who supplies us for the tasks that he calls us to. 
Do you remember, Timothy, God gave you a spirit not of timidity, but power, love, self-discipline. And we will need to remember that as we go through these eight verses. Paul sets up a very high bar. But what God calls us to, he equips us for. Let's have a look at them, verse 1. Verse 1, it is very urgent. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. And by saying in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, this calling of witnesses is an appeal to the solemnity of the task. And how solemn can you get? There will be parallels in our court, in our court of law today. It's as if Paul says, here I've got the two most important witnesses in the whole world ever, and you're making this charge before them. God the Father and God the Son are looking and are listening in. Timothy, this matters. And just to raise the stakes even more, how does he describe Jesus? Jesus who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom. Do you see, this is not a game. Paul says, one day Jesus will come back. But when he comes back, it's as if he's going to have two very different jobs. He's going to be judge. He will judge the living and the dead. Everyone who has ever lived will stand before him. In a world of injustice, isn't that a great thing? In a world where we can hardly watch the 10 o'clock news, isn't it comforting to know that megalomaniacs and rapists and abusers and murderers and executioners won't get away with that forever? One day Jesus will come back and judge. This is a moral universe. So he will come and judge, but he will come and be king as well because he brings in his kingdom. Do you see that? And kingdoms have kings. So the judgment line that he draws isn't how worthy or righteous or how good we are, but whether we've had faith in this king. As Paul puts it earlier in the letter, it's by his own purpose and grace. It's a gift. It's a gift to respond to. That's how we become part of this kingdom. And so there is Timothy in front of God the Father and God the Son, Jesus, who's going to come one day to judge and to be king. And what's Timothy to do? He's to preach the word. That the future reality brings a task for his people now. Preach the word. Timothy, there's all kinds of things that will pull on your time. There are all kinds of things that you can do to fill up your week. There are all sorts of things to be praying for and focusing on and concentrating on, but here is the top of the list. Preach the word. And the word at root is shorthand for the core gospel message about Jesus. And it matters because, do you want to know the way through judgments? Do you want to know the way to be a part of the kingdom? Then listen to the message about Jesus. Listen to the word about him, because the judge is the rescuer, is the king. 
They preach the word. One of the, um, the joys about coming back home to Oxford is just some of the natural environment we have around us. And particularly, I love the commute into the centre, which I will sometimes make along the river. It's lovely. You see wildlife and rowers and barges, and the water is there next to you. And the problem is, on certain corners, it all gets a bit narrow. And so what you do is you, you ring your bell, which means, I'm coming, I'm coming through, watch out, warning. And you see, what can't happen is the bike coming the other way in that narrow section can't say, well, that's fine for you, but I'm not really a you're coming along the track and it's too narrow kind of a person. If that's how you view reality, if if that's how you view the state of things, that's fine, but that's not how I view reality. That's not my truth. I'm just going to carry on. In my mind, the track is wide. And in my mind, in my truth, you're not coming. And so, do you see the logic was verse 1? Jesus is coming back as judge. That's not just our truth. That is the message of the New Testament. It's the message of Jesus. It's not a, that doesn't really fit for me and how I view reality type thing. The way the New Testament talks of it, it is just truth. Whether people like it or not, whether we are ready or not, one day Jesus will come back as judge and as king. Can I say, if you're someone who's never quite grasped that before, I'd urge you to trust Christ today, but perhaps to chat to a Christian who's brought you. For the rest of us, like Timothy, we see why Paul is so clear that this word must be spoken of, that Jesus must be preached. It might be hard for us to swallow, it might not be what itching ears want to hear, but it is completely vital if verse 1 is true. This message is God's plan and there is no plan B. So it's very urgent. Secondly, it's all the time. Verse 2. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. So when... In season and out of season, which I take it the bottom line means always. There are different ideas out there as to exactly what Paul is getting at as he says it. It it might be when you're ready and when you're not ready. You've practiced and you feel you've got something great to say and then the opportunity just arises out of the blue when you weren't really expecting it. You have to be prepared to take it. Maybe you're praying each morning for open doors for the the people that you, you spend time with. And through your week. And you've imagined the conversation with that person in your office and you've rehearsed it and you know what you want to say and you think what they're going to say and you expect you know how it's going to go and then suddenly out of the blue they say something else when you weren't ready. It's on their terms, it's their questions, it's their situation, it's, it's out of season. I think of parents at school who a little while ago out of the blue wanted to talk to us, ask us about baptism. They were considering getting their their seven-year-old child baptised. And what do you think of that? Wow. Not a church-going family. Prepared in season and out of season means being willing and ready to speak when the doors open. Or it may be that Paul is picking up the earlier farming metaphor from chapter 2. In season is when there's fruit. Out of season is when there's no fruit. 
When there's fruit and people are interested and warm and the seats are full and wanting to chat stuff through and you can barely fit enough people into Christianity Explored and everyone's asking what you think is a Christian. Out of season, it's just no one's interested. The ground feels very rocky and very hard. But it's being willing to plough on. To keep going, to not lose your nerve. And doing what? Well, correct, rebuke, encourage. Very similar to the words from the kids' slot. If you were here a few weeks ago as well in chapter 3. Correcting and rebuking and encouraging is the language of wanting to help someone change what they think and to change how they behave. I'm always struck and challenged by the fact that we need to be kind enough to people to care enough to challenge them. If they're off track, then we're to lovingly rebuke, to make it awkward. That little story in Mark chapter 10 always always does it for me. It's when Jesus is, is in, encounters the rich young ruler. This guy seems to be blessed by God. He, he seems to be faithful to God, therefore. He's, it's clear, though, that money is his issue. He loves money. He's captivated my money. And Mark says this. Mark says, Jesus looked to him and loved him and told him to give his money away. He loves him and he tells him hard truths. It might not be what itching ears want to hear. But if we love people enough, we will correct and rebuke and encourage. Some of you will have heard of um, an Anglican clergyman from the last century, a guy called Eric John Hewitson Nash, um, shortened to Bash. And he invested lots of time and energy into to different key leaders who, who have been used and are still being hugely used around the world, around the country today, just to rattle a few names off that some of you will have come across. People like Michael Green, Hugh Palmer, Richard Buse, Dick Lucas, Mark Ashton, David McInnes, Timothy Dudley-Smith, William Taylor, John Stott. He invested in these young men and the Lord has gone on to use them mightily. But this comment from John Stott really caught my eye. He was talking of the letters that Bash would send around, or send him. And he says this, he says, His letters to me often contained a rebuke, for I was a wayward young Christian. In fact, so frequent were his admonitions at one period that whenever I saw his familiar writing on an envelope, I needed to pray and prepare myself for half an hour before I felt ready to open it. Sure, he did more than rebuke them. But it's striking that he did do that. And you see, Paul knows that we need to do it carefully. He knows how easily correction can turn into something nasty, how badly we can take it from others and how badly we can give it to others. And so, do you see the last bits of the verse? See how we're to do it with great patience and careful instruction. It's not a power play. It's not one-upmanship. It's not notching up scores. It's genuinely wanting the best for someone. Which means all of verse 2 is vital for a church like us as we, as we long to be a church family that, that fosters genuine, loving, kind friendships 
where we can be vulnerable and our lives can be seen and we can encourage each other and challenge each other, where we can correct and rebuke and encourage. Because we're not finished and because we easily get proud and because we do it wrong and we get defensive and offended, then great patience, careful instruction. Is it going to be easy, Timothy? No. No, no, saying this kind of hard stuff in a culture of itching ears, it's going to be very difficult. And Paul has already been there. He's under no illusions. So verse 5, we see it's hard work. Timothy, you, unlike these false teachers, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. In a kind of culture of skewed loves, the temptations for Timothy will be many and varied. So verse 5, if he's tempted, particularly as a young man, to lose his rag and to seek to win the argument rather than win the person, then Timothy, keep your head in all situations. Remember, he's got God's spirit of self-discipline to help him with that. That's been a surprising drumbeat right through the letter. Don't beat them up. Gently instruct those who oppose you. Timothy, if you're tempted to avoid difficulties, we know he's got a tendency towards timidity, then endure hardship. Don't go for the easy option. Don't always go for the path of least resistance. Speak when you need to. Endure hardship. Maybe he's tempted to to shirk responsibility, to focus on other things. There are always reasons not to do evangelism. There are always reasons not to preach the gospel words. We've all got excuses. Many of us have got knocking knees all the time. We're too busy, but he is to do the work of an evangelist. It's a great reminder for us as a church, corporately. I know some of you will have received an email these last couple of weeks. We're thinking how we can keep evangelism front and central for us as a body together. If you've not filled it out, there's still time please do send it back to Tim. Help us to get better at this. It's true at the corporate level, but it's true as well for individuals. We're all those who who announce the good news in different ways, and we're gifted in different ways, but as I said at the start, I've never met a person who finds it easy. Never. But do the work of an evangelist. And I'll say it again, this is an excellent opportunity at this time of year. It is such an easy invite. I'd love to challenge each of us to to invite at least one person along to something Christmassy. There might be something like a Carols by Candlelight or a live nativity, or there might be in your Christian union or something at work, or whatever it might be. This time of year is a great opportunity that we have at this sort of stage in our cultural, societal progression or decline, we can still invite people for Christmas. Or maybe just this verse reignites us and refocuses us on speaking to our friends of Jesus again, praying for opportunities each morning, praying that you would want to pray for opportunities each morning. Because it's easy to be discouraged and to give up and to just feel a bit past that or it just feels too hard and 
But remember verse 1, Jesus is coming back as judge and as king. Or in verse 5, fourthly, the temptation might be just simply to listen to Paul and then just not bother, to not actually do it. You know that, don't you? You you can engage and you can hear and you can understand and then we just think, yeah, whatever. Not actually bother doing it. Not to work its way through into the week, but it just kind of stays in notes or in your head. So Timothy is to discharge all the duties of his ministry. Which means, to put it bluntly, bottom line, when it comes down to it, Timothy, just do it. Do it. All of them, Timothy. Not just the stuff you like. Not just the stuff you find easy. But all the duties of your ministry. And so it's round about this time that there's that mix of, of euphoria and dread excitement and dismay. It's the pumped up and ready to go and I'm going to speak to my friends of Jesus and then painfully aware of weaknesses and past failures. It's not long before we start to mentally weigh things up and to count the cost. It's urgent. It's, it's all the time. It's hard work, really. It's just after a quiet life. Well, Paul says, yes, it is worth it. It is really worth it. Verse 6 to 8. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. And I have fought the good fight, and I have finished the race, and I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Do you see, Paul describes himself, not in an arrogant way, but to just model the pattern for Timothy, to, and to make it clear that he is going to be gone. Timothy, look at me and look at my example and follow me, but also look at me, look at my absence, and fill my shoes. Step up to the plate. It's your time now. Timothy, this is you. He says he's being poured out like a drink offering, which is a picture from the Old Testament of the completion of a sacrifice. In a sense, like Jesus, he is offering himself. He is pouring himself out. And one of the things with Old Testament sacrificial offerings is that there were often leftovers. There were, there were unused body parts, that there was perhaps ash as a residue at the end of the sacrifice. It's a burnt offering. But with drink offerings like this, there was nothing left. No leftovers, nothing to be seen. It was all gone. Paul is pouring himself out. And so he is entirely expended. And then as he does, he changes the imagery from verse 7. He's fought the good fight. He's finished the race. He's kept the faith. And I think all words from the athletic arena. All pictures and metaphors. He's competed in a contest. He has finished the race. He has done it according to the rules. He's rounded the final bend. And then he draws himself into the story. 
We've seen that Jesus is coming for verse 1 as judge. Why so Paul will be judged by him too. And so for him there's this crown of righteousness, verse 8, which was an amazing honour given on completing a race, a, a, a wreath to show success. A great and glorious joy for the Christian of of hearing Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. It was worth it. It was worth it. Friends, can I urge you, don't hold back. We're natural lovers of self. We're natural self-preservers. But don't hold back. Pour yourself out, as Paul does. It is worth pouring yourself out for Christ. It is worth giving him your all. Make sacrificial lifestyle changes. Pour yourself out for him. That will look different for different people in different contexts in this room. Different life stages. It will mean very different things. If you're, if you're a younger person, however you like to draw those lines, you're never too young to pour yourself out for Jesus. At school or at college or university or in the workplace, don't think you have to reach a certain age or level of maturity before you can pour yourself out for him. If you're somewhere in the middle, don't let the busyness of life, the the distractions of the world, mean that you lose your zeal, that you turn lukewarm. And if you're in your later years, in a sense, remember, you never retire. How you serve will will differ and will change and will adapt. But still pour yourself out for him. Because it's worth it. Because there's a crown of righteousness. Because we will see our judge and our king face to face and then we will know It was worth it. But again, remember his grace. Remember his spirit who enables us. Because the danger with a verse like verse 8, bizarrely, when we think about this crown of righteousness, our hearts can slide once again into self-reliance and works and competition and selfish desires. When the crown is our goal, and with these sinful hearts, then it can almost become a self-centred thing. But as we daily pour ourselves out for him, remember from earlier in the letter, we are to be strong in his grace. As we speak of Christ coming as judge and as king, as we correct, rebuke and encourage, as we speak the word in a culture where there are itching ears, as we faithfully say stuff that may not be popular, be strong in his grace. It is worth it. It is worth it. Let's pray. Our loving Father, you know each of us and you know where these verses bite. You know that we fear man, we fear what others will think of us. We're tempted to say what itching ears want to hear. 
And so we pray that you would please captivate us afresh with the gospel, with your grace and your mercy and your kindness, with the beauty of the cross, such that we long to speak to others of the Lord Jesus. Help us please to to pray for opportunities, to pray, to pray for opportunities. Would you open our mouths and open our lives so that people will see the difference that Jesus makes? And might we be the kind of environment where we, we love each other such that we do correct, rebuke and encourage? And the kind of church that points one another to that crown at the end. Father, we acknowledge before you that disconnect between what we read in your word and what we read to be true of the Lord Jesus coming back as judge and yet that making little difference through how we live through the week. Convict us and change us, we pray. And send us out from here, joyful in the gospel, with the message of Jesus resound from us. In his name we pray. Amen.